Good morning, Mount Horeb. Dude, people came to church today. I had people come and be like, there's no place to park. I'm like, sorry. Hey, listen, I'm so glad you're here in worship this morning. If you're in the room, let me hear from you. Good. If you're watching online, thank you for tuning in as well. We are here as one church to worship together, and I'm excited for God to teach us something new as we open his word with one another once again. So I'd encourage you, as Chad said a second ago, open your hearts, open your minds to what God wants to say to each of us this morning. We started a new series last week called Generosity, and we've been talking about all the endless connections between God's grace, his mercy, and his generosity towards us, and then in turn, our grace, mercy, and generosity towards others. If you were here in the room, Jeff did a really great job of kicking off the series and setting everything up for us for the coming weeks as we wrestle with all of this. One of the things he said I felt was so helpful is he talked about open hands, making sure that we have open hands rather than clenching tight to our stuff and the things that we consider to be ours, we open them up to be a blessing to the world around us. And so this morning, I wanna talk about open tables, having open tables. Um, I remember as a middle school kid, maybe some of you can relate to this, one of the most nerve-wracking things about middle school was knowing that on the first day of school, you'd have to go and do what? Find a place to sit at lunch, right? Maybe that wasn't on your mind. That was on my mind. I mean, first, I was like, what am I going to wear to school? Okay, got that. Now, my family moved like every three years when I was a kid, and so I was always in a new location, new place, and so this is like a, a, a very anxiety-ridden kind of thing, like, who am I going to sit with? Where am I going to sit? How am I going to make it happen? So as a middle school kid, I remember going to lunch, and I would get my little tray, you know, the little tray with all the little, like, individual holes and stuff. You'd have your pepperoni pizza, your tropical fruit cup, you know, and then, because you, you know what I'm talking about, right? And then your chocolate milk, and you would take it, and you would walk out, and it was the same kind of routine every time. You would walk around the lunchroom, and you had to be very strategic, because you couldn't just look at people. You had to kind of be kind of sneaky about it. So you would look, kind of just glance, and if people would look at you, they'd be like, Oh, keep moving. So you, you go to the next place, you're like, and like, no, okay. And so you just keep moving around the lunch table. Everything's cool, everything's fine. Your heart begins to race just a little bit, but eventually you would turn the corner and see, oh, there's that one kid I know from first period. That's like the only person in the whole school I know. And there's a seat next to him. And he glanced just a bit and he's like, so you go sit down and you finally sit down and your heart would finally begin to, because you made it one day through the gauntlet of the lunchroom, the cafeteria. And here's why. It is such a special thing to know that you have a seat next to someone else and you get to enjoy a meal. And you've got a safe place to be. It feels good to have a place at the table, doesn't it? It feels good to have a place at the table. You know, our culture, the table is a sign and a symbol of a lot of things. It's a sign of belonging, of connection, of camaraderie. It's a symbol of generosity. It's something that's used in our culture so many different ways. I would imagine that many of you in the room, some of your greatest memories that you have happened with friends around a table, eating good food, laughing, and talking late into the night. The table's a place of connection. And it was true also in the ancient Near East, not just here in our culture currently. The Bible in the book of Luke captures this experience that Jesus has with a bunch of other people at this party, around this table, at a prominent Pharisee's home. And the encounter takes place on a Jewish uh, Sabbath, a Jewish day of rest known as the Sabbath. It'd be their Saturday where they would do no kind of work. So Jesus is there with this group of people. They're at this party. But Jesus is frustrated from the very beginning of chapter 14. And the reason he's frustrated is because at this party, there's another individual, a man there, the Bible says, who has a swelling in his body. We don't know exactly what the issue is or what's going on. But Jesus sees it so dire that he's willing to break the Jewish law to heal him on the Sabbath. And so he does. He heals him. 
To which everyone in the room's like, oh, Jesus, we shouldn't do that. You're breaking the Sabbath law. This is a day of rest. You shouldn't do any kind of work. And so Jesus already is a little bit perturbed with the group of people here because clearly they lack a generous spirit. They lack a generous spirit. They are more concerned with protocol than they are with people. And so Jesus is frustrated by this. The Bible continues to tell us more about why Jesus is frustrated. The second thing that frustrates Jesus is the Bible says he looks around, he notices that there are already guests who are seated in the places of honor. And here they come. There are already people who are sitting in the places of honor. And to really understand why Jesus is so frustrated about this, we have to understand the politics of the meal table. They interacted in a certain kind of way. The table was then and still is today a reflection of individuals and their places in the broader view of society. You would sit in a certain place for a certain reason. And each meal was and is an opportunity to establish or advance a person's place in the social order. So just like in our culture today, oftentimes business deals are made, what, over a table, right? At a meal. Conversations that are very important are had over a table, over a meal. And so in the, Old, in the New Testament, the ancient Near East, this was the kind of thing that was going on as well. They had this big dinner party. Certain people were invited. And Jesus looks, and there are already two people who are sitting in the places of honor. Now, at any table in the ancient Near East, there was something called a, tri, a triclinium. The triclinium was a dining room, a Roman dining room, and it would be uh, set up in a certain way. You'd have a short table in the middle where the food would come and be rested. And then there was couches, three of them around the outside of the table. And so rather than sitting in a chair with your feet underneath the table, you would, you would kind of recline on the couch, then you would get food with the other hand. It sounds so good, doesn't it? Just relaxing and eating with each other, charcuterie, whatever. And so that's how they would eat. They would, they would relax around these couches, and they would have conversation with one another. They would enjoy each other's presence, and they would do deals and all kinds of things, and they would eat. Oh, they would relax around the table. Three people at each couch. Now, the host of the table sat in a very specific place. The host of the party sat in a very specific place. And on either side of him, on the right and on the left, were known as the places of honor. Those were special individuals who were allowed to sit there. And Jesus looks, and those seats are already taken. Now, my family, my kids, we have this same kind of struggle in our scenario. Every day after church, if we go out to lunch, this is what happens. My mom and my dad or uh, Jenna's mom or Jenna's grandma comes along, and there's an argument that takes place, and all my kids are like, listen, Grammy and Papa are sitting next to me. No, Granny's sitting next to me. No, Mana's sitting, and there's this thing that goes on. Nobody ever wants to sit by dad or by mom. Maybe because things get bought on a phone if they sit by those individuals. Promises get made for later on. There's candy that's given under the table. Those kinds of things. And so there's an argument that goes on. I want to sit by Grammy. I want to sit by Papa. All these kinds of things. This is what's happening in this story. Jesus sees there are two people already seated in the places of honor. What Jesus notices already going on in the situation, these chosen seats, coveted seats are already taken up. And he tells a story to make his point. And he's speaking to two individuals, two different types of people in this story. He's addressing Jewish table customs. He's speaking to the individuals who have come to the party who would oftentimes come to the party looking for a way to extend themselves within society, to make themselves look a certain way. They would love to be invited to a great party where they could be seen by all the who's who in Bethlehem or whatever. So sure enough, they come and sit in that way. Also, he's addressing the hosts who would oftentimes invite certain people to these parties so they could get repayment on the back end, invited to some other kind of important status symbol party later on. And Jesus says, speaking to both groups, 
I'm teaching you a new etiquette about table uh, meals with one another, a new way of doing things. Instead of approaching the meal table the way you have in the past, I want you to approach it with humility. Jesus says in chapter 14 of, of Luke, leave the honored seats for others. There might be someone who comes in after you who's in need of those seats even before you. And then he says this, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. So Jesus is teaching table etiquette to everyone at the party. That'd be kind of awkward, wouldn't it? Teaching table etiquette, but he's also trying to teach them something at this party, something about the way of the kingdom, something about the way of humility, something about the way of generosity and how we approach a situation like this. Jesus says generosity flows from a humble heart. A humble heart who doesn't see the place of honor as a place that's only allocated for you. One of the most powerful things that Jeff said last week, I believe, was that for centuries, one of the most distinguishing factors of Christians, the marks of Christians, were that they were generous people. They were always looking for ways to put others ahead of themselves, to look after others' needs ahead of their own needs, to put others more important than themselves. My family, uh, when I was young, my family were missionaries for a while, and um, when I was in middle school, we actually moved to the Dominican Republic for a specific set of time before we moved back to Indiana. And while we were there, um, my parents worked at a, a ministry there, and we developed a relationship with a family that lived outside of our town out in the mountains, about an hour kind of really treacherous drive, motorcycle ride up a hill to get to a village called Boma. And in this community, there was a man named Enrique, an older gentleman named Enrique with his whole family. And at the time, Enrique was the only Christian in his entire village. He'd been a Christian for some time, and he lived on the top of the hill, and he kind of take it upon himself to be generous and take care of the whole community of 80-plus people. And so we developed a relationship with him alongside of my aunt and uncle who lived in the country at the time as well. We would oftentimes go out there and serve the people of Boma in different kinds of ways. There was a hurricane that came through not long after we had moved there, and so my cousins and I drove motorcycles out one weekend. We were there for a couple days, and all we did all day long was pull logs out of the river and cut them with chainsaws to make planks to rebuild the homes that had been washed away all through Enrique and through his family. And so there's a relationship that was built there that lasted for years. In fact, when I came back to the States, there was a trip I would take with students here from Mount Horeb to Boma year after year after year to serve continually in that location. One of my favorite times in Boma was always when we would come back to the house at night. Enrique had been a chef in an earlier life, and so he would sit us down in kind of his open-air kitchen, a rickety table. There was like one bulb that was barely getting light to all of us in this open-air kitchen, and we would enjoy a meal together, chicken and beans and rice, and he'd make delicious coffee, and we would laugh and talk deep into the night. And with Enrique, it was so clear that this was a gentleman who had so experienced the grace and mercy of God in his life that it was the most natural thing for him to be generous to others around him. I mean, certainly to us around the table eating a meal with him, but to everyone who lived in his community. He was generous. He wanted to serve. He wanted every single person to know this wonderful grace that had been poured into his life as it overflowed out of his life. So here's what I want to say this morning. Like Enrique, you don't have to be rich to be my girl. At nine o'clock, that kind of came out. I didn't mean for it to. Uh, but sometimes you don't read the things you write until you're doing it. <laughs> what I meant to say was, you don't have to be rich to be generous. It's not a prerequisite for generosity. You don't have to have more than someone else to be generous to someone. A generous spirit can be done with whatever God has given to us. 
So there are people across the socioeconomic spectrum who are generous people because they're aware of the grace that God has given to them. All you must be is humble, humble, and aware of the fact that God loves you enough that he shared with you so that you could share with others. One of the things I love about this church is it is full of humble and generous people. I've never seen a need that has come to this congregation that we have not met, if not exceeded, because there are people here at this church who are aware of the grace of God within their lives and who are willing to share it with other people. And so Jesus, at this dinner party, he begins to address then the host directly. After he has some of this discussion, and he says, okay, by the way, the guy who's thrown the party, let me tell you something. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 14, verse 12. So then Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so that you'll be repaid. So Jesus is making a point of what's happening here within this room. And he says, hey, listen, you might need to rethink who you have around your table. Like who have you invited to be sitting here in the seats of honor? You see, the way of the world then and the way of the world now is to make sure that we invite individuals who could somehow advance our standing or who might just invite us to a greater party maybe sometime in the future. However, the way of the kingdom, according to Jesus, is the guests who should be around the table are ones who cannot offer us any kind of benefit. It doesn't seem to me so much about who's around the table, but why they're around the table. What's the motivation behind it? Why are we having this meal with these individuals? Are we looking for some kind of benefit for ourselves, or are we looking for a way to be generous to others? You see, the true test of generosity is whether or not we are willing to give to those who cannot return the favor. You want to know how, you want to know if we are really, truly generous? Am I willing to give something that I'm not going to get anything in return for? It may actually be squandered. Some might even call it a waste. Am I willing to do that? Not looking for repayment, but instead looking for opportunities to be generous. Let me be very clear this, this morning, church. What the church, big C, worldwide, global church needs now more than ever are groups of committed followers of Jesus who will back their Sunday attendance, their social media posts, and their Christian talk with financial sacrifice and calloused hands for service. I'm not asking you anything to do that I would not do myself. All the while being fully aware that the individuals who will most benefit from what we are giving and doing and serving from our time, attention, energy, and affection could never repay us for the sacrifices that we've given. That's the generous life. That's what Jesus is trying to teach this host. Years ago, we took a group of high school students from the church to a summer camp called Big Stuff in Florida. And it was kind of an annual trip that we would often do with our high school students. And it was a great camp, a great trip. And we were there for the full week. We played on the beach. We ate food. We laughed. We heard great speakers, worshiped, the whole thing. And about halfway through our time there, some individuals came out on the stage and began to present about how Big Stuff was partnering with other individuals around the world. And they were drilling wells in Africa. Because in Africa, there was a lack of clean water. And so because there was a lack of clean water, there were people who were getting sick and there were children who were dying because they didn't have adequate clean water. And so because of that, churches that were there had the opportunity to give some money and be a part of kind of drilling these wells. And so they got finished kind of giving their presentation, showing a great video and everybody kind of clapped and they walked off and that was kind of it. 
Well, we got back to Lexington, and about a week later, uh, myself and other youth pastors are sitting in our youth offices when all of a sudden there's a knock on the door, and we open it up, and it's a small group of our high school girls. And they walk in, they're like, hey, listen, we've got a problem. I'm like, well, what's the problem? I said, we can't go back to doing like normal high school stuff. We can't go back to dances and cheerleading and all the other things that we do because we can't stop thinking about the people in Africa who don't have clean water. We can't stop thinking about the children who are dying because there's no clean water for them and we wanna do something about it. So as good youth pastors, we're like, um, well, what do you wanna do? And they're like, well, we've got a plan. And so they, they created this, this organization all on their own called H2O, get it, water? Uh, help to others. And so they made t-shirts, they started selling t-shirts. They would come to our fifth quarter events, they would sell t-shirts there and try to raise awareness with other high school students that were there to help be a part of drilling wells in Africa and all these things. And sure enough, eventually the church kind of grabbed a hold of it as well and the kids' ministry took it on themselves. Vacation Bible School began to raise money in the summer that went to H2O to drill these wells. And long story short, after a lot of years in faithful ministry, there are 10 wells in Africa today because this small group of high school girls decided it was something important to them. 10. Like I'm convinced that there are people in Africa today who are healthy. There are children who are alive today because there were a group of high school students who decided that it wasn't okay to just go back to doing life as normal. That they wanted to do whatever they could to make a difference within the world. And there were wonderful people in this church, in this community, who came alongside of them and sacrificially gave to be able to drill wells in Africa to make a difference in people's lives. And guess what? They never got one bit of thanks from it. Never any letter from Africa saying, hey, thank you so much for the well. Here's a picture of us drinking it. None of that kind of stuff. We never had them stand on the stage and clap for them. These girls are out of our program now. They have lives and children of their own, still doing wonderful things. We never gave them some kind of award. In fact, they didn't want it. That was not the point. The point of their generosity, the point of their care and concern for others was simply because they were aware of the grace and love and mercy of God that had been so given to them that they could not imagine not being a part of something that would allow space at the table for others to experience it as well. And if it meant drilling wells and giving fresh water, they were gonna do it. If it meant printing t-shirts and selling it at fifth quarter, they were gonna do it. Because a generous spirit comes from a, a humble spirit who recognizes that God has been so generous to us and so we ought to be generous to others. So Jesus says to the host, don't invite the people that you normally invite to these parties your friends, your family, those who were influential, who could possibly pay you back in the past. Instead, he says this in chapter 14, verse 13 through 14. Jesus then says, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus tells this individual, maybe it's time to reevaluate who you have sitting at your table and why they're there. Rather than inviting all of these, Jesus says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. They should be at this party. They should be at this table. 
Now, in the ancient Near East, when these parties would take place, they were oftentimes outside the home in a terrace of some kind, open air. And what would often happen is there would be a group of people enjoying a meal with one another, and literally, around the outside, all of the marginalized from society would stand around and watch them eat and watch them enjoy their meal. So I can imagine Jesus saying this to this host and saying, see all these people? Those are the ones who be seated here. They should be in the place of honor. They should be enjoying this meal with you. You see, Jesus' table manners make outsiders feel like insiders. All throughout the scriptures, you see Jesus spend time with people around food. It's one of the things I love about him. <laughs> Always food involved. He feeds 5,000 hungry people in the countryside. He ate with sinners and tax collectors and made the religious people nervous. He cooked fish on the beach with his disciples. It was culturally one of the best ways to build relationship, symbolize connection, and validate other people. And Jesus did it often. And during the pandemic, um, my family started watching more television. Anybody else? And my mom and dad stumbled upon this television show called uh, Somebody Feed Phil. Now, my dad's name's Phil, so we thought it was kind of funny. So they started watching Somebody Feed, Feed Phil. Has anybody seen this show by chance? Wow, there's like four people all morning that have seen this television. How is it still on Netflix? Watch it today, okay? Somebody feed Phil. Now, this show was created by a guy named Phil Rosenthal. You may have heard of him. He's the guy who created um, Everyone Loves Raymond. Great television show. So Phil Rosenthal, it has the most simple plot of any television show ever. And there's five episodes of it. This guy, Phil, he just travels to different parts of the world exploring different cultures one bite at a time. I want that job. I'll make that show. And here's what it says on Netflix. Phil has a childlike wonder and curiosity about different cultures with food serving as the entry point of deeper understanding and significant connection. After eating with Phil, strangers feel like family. Whether it's from sharing a love of pork or sharing a good laugh, Phil grows his family with every new city. And what's so shocking is as we sat down to watch the first episode together, I had two thoughts. Number one, this show is about nothing. Phil goes to a new place, they go to a market, they buy some food, they cook it, and they eat it and talk about stuff. That was my first thought. My second thought was, I don't know why, but I want to be around that table. The way Phil would interact with people, the stories he would share, the laughs they would have, everything that was going on there made me want to be a part of what was going on. I think why Jesus is having this conversation with this group of people at this party is because he believes, and I believe too, that the followers of God, those who follow Jesus and trust him, should throw the kinds of parties, be the kinds of hosts that people would look and say, I want to be around that table. Not because I want to further myself in society, not because I want to make some kind of great deal, not because I want to be rich and famous, but because I want to spend time in connection with those people. It feels like love. It seems like the right thing. You see, Jesus understood that generosity was not just about sacrificial giving. It's about sacrificial living. It's as much about writing checks for a tithe that do impact the lives of people and our much-needed work of God, but it's as much about that as it is about making space for others to feel like they matter, belong, and are loved by God. It makes me wonder... What if we were to invite people to dinner before we invite them to Jesus or to church? Come, come sit with me and eat with me. Let's have connection and talk. 
What is shocking about Jesus's message here in the end is he says, don't fill your, ta your table with people who could repay you because you might be tempted to only look after that. But instead, he says, fill your table with other kinds of people, the, the crippled, the poor, the lame, the hurting, the sick. And he says, if you do, there will be a repayment in the end, but it's totally different than the kind that you might think would come. You see, your sacrificial service, your sacrificial giving will have echoes in eternity. It will make a difference, not just on this side of heaven, but on the other one as well. But beyond that, there is a reward that we get. The reward of being a generous person is, guess what? We become a generous person. Some of you are like, that sounds horrible. It's a reward. The reward of being a generous person is you become a generous person. Your character becomes shaped like Jesus. It becomes second nature for you to love people and give grace to people. You don't even have to think about it. It's a part of who you are. As God's grace flows in, it overflows to those around you. We don't even have to think about it. And we end up looking more and more and more like Christ. That's a good reward. The reward of being a generous person is becoming a generous person. And so Jesus is trying to teach this host three very important things that I think we must learn as well. The first one is this. A good host invites everyone to come. A good host invites everyone to come. There is no kind of special exclusive guest list. No kind of special credentials that you must have. Aside from receiving the grace of God, being repentant and wanting to be close to Jesus, that's all that's required. In fact, some of the hosts who invite other people to come, guess what? Those people don't even show up. Some hosts who invite people to come find out they're only there for the food. But a good host invites them anyway because it's an open table for all people to come and be a part of. When I was in high school, my dad built a really great house in Indiana where I grew up. And this house was was really big because we built it ourselves. And so we had a whole basement that we finished out. We had a water fountain in the basement because there was constantly people over at our house. Like there was, it was not odd for a Tuesday night, a Thursday night, to have 20 to 30 high school kids all slammed into my dining room eating pizza rolls and ice cream. And the most amazing thing about it was all these kids who would come and they would spend time, we would talk about Jesus. We would talk about life. There were some kids around that table who would say to my mom and dad, like, you are like another mother and another father to me. And everyone was invited. Everyone was welcome to come around this table. If you came to the Miller household during the week, you were treated like family. So if you did something dumb, you're gonna be hearing about it. But also if we had something to eat, it was open for you to consume. In the Miller family, if you were invited to the house, you were welcome there. And so we had so many people that would come and spend time. I learned from an early age what it looked like to be generous toward people, to invite people in. You see, when we come to recognize and realize that the table of God that we have been invited into is because of God's grace and his generosity towards us, regardless of our background, regardless of our stakes, but simply because we are loved by him, then it becomes the most natural thing for us to offer that to other people. We ourselves become great hosts because we have been hosted well by Jesus himself. And we in turn make space at the table because space at the table was made for us. Everyone is welcome to come. Secondly, a good host sets the table at their own cost. 
A good host sets a table at their own cost. See, in the ancient Near East, when there was a party of any kind, it was funded exclusively. The expenses were paid exclusively by the host themselves. And so, just like yesterday, we threw a party for my daughter who just turned three, and we had a Doc McStuffins you know, blowout in the dining room, in the kitchen, all around the home. And I learned pretty quickly that I started asking, what, what are these boxes that are coming in here? And I asked questions about how much is it costing for the decor, the food, and the things. Eventually, I was like, you know what? Just don't tell me. Just make it happen. Like, just throw the party. I don't want to know about it. Because let's be honest, parties are expensive. No matter what you're doing, any kind of party, any guests who come, it's going to cost some money. And so this morning, if you are going to live the generous life, it's going to cost you something. It may mean you have to rearrange some of your priorities to make other things more important. It will require you to say no to some things so you can say yes to even better things that might impact the lives of other people. You see, setting the table for others means providing backpacks full of food for children in our district who would not have a meal on the weekend other than this church being willing to offer. Setting the table generously is building 12 homes in Liberia right now for families that they might have a safe place to live because of the generosity of this church. Setting the table for others means providing things that families are in need of. Setting the table for others means buying the groceries for the single mom behind you at Food Lion. It will cost you something, but that's the price of generosity. And the reward is becoming a generous person. Third, a good host expects nothing in return. A good host expects nothing in return. My father-in-law, Derwood Owens, passed away a couple years ago after a long battle with cancer. And I remember from the time that I first started dating Jenna as a boyfriend coming into the house, spending time with all of their friends and family who were there. My father-in-law was one of the best cooks ever. Some of the best steaks I've ever eaten my entire life came out of his kitchen. And so he was the kind that would buy big chunks of meat, cut his own steaks like this thick. I mean, per cook it perfectly. We would enjoy it. And the funniest thing was we would all be enjoying a meal together at Durwood's house. If anybody came up and said to him, hey, Mr. Durwood, thank you so much. This is so good. He always responded the same way. He would always say this, I just hope you can eat it. I'm just glad you can eat it. I'm just glad you can eat it. And he wasn't deferring any kind of repayment or thanks or anything like that because he was too good for it. He was doing it because he genuinely was humble enough to say, I just hope you can enjoy it. I just hope you can eat it. One of the things my wife still talks about today is one of her favorite memories is when he would cook something really good. One of his favorite things was just to sit and watch you eat it. Just watch you enjoy it. That's all he needed. You see, a good host needs nothing in return because your presence at the table, enjoying the meal, being with them, that's all they're looking for. So a good host invites everyone to come. A good host sets the table at their own cost, and a good host expects nothing in return. They're giving of themselves for your sake only. It's interesting, at the end of Jesus' life, we find him once again around a table. And this time, he's around a table with his disciples right before he'll be arrested and eventually he'll be crucified and killed. And this time, he's the host of the meal. It's a Passover meal. You might know it, know it as the Last Supper. In Matthew chapter 26, we see this story unfold, starting in verse 20, where it says this. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. 
They were very sad and began to say to him, which one of us, surely you don't mean me, Lord? Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It'd be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, who had dipped into the bowl with him said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, you have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread before them at the table. And he lifted it before them and he broke, broke it. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. And then he took the cup that was before them and he lifted it before them and he said, this is my blood that'll be shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins and for the world. He says, I tell you again, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives where he would eventually be arrested. In these verses, Jesus sets for us the greatest example of how to live a life of generosity. He is the greatest host who embodies every lesson that he tried to teach the individual, the host in Luke chapter 14, because Jesus is the greatest host because he invites everyone to the table. You see, the reason the Bible gives us this little bit of detail about the person dipping in the bowl next to him is because more than likely Judas is sitting in a seat of honor. The one who would betray Jesus, who would turn him over to authorities, who would sell him, that individual Jesus has allowed a seat in the seat of honor right next to him. Jesus welcomes everyone to the table, even the one who would betray him. And if we're gonna follow the example of the greatest host, Jesus, then we too must set the table, welcome the seats to individuals who don't look like us, think like us, vote like us, treat us kindly. The table of the Lord is open to everyone. Secondly, Jesus is the greatest host because he has set this meal at his own cost. At every Jewish meal, there will be two staples, bread and wine. Jesus takes the mundane, he makes it miraculous by taking the bread and breaking it before them and saying, see this bread? It's like my body that's about to be crucified and broken. And this cup is like my blood that's about to be shed for the forgiveness of your sins. See, this table that's been set for us has been set by Jesus' own body himself, his own sacrifice. Every mistake, every misstep, every sin, every brokenness is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he pays for it himself his broken body and his shed blood for the world. Lastly, Jesus is the greatest host because he expects nothing in return. Throughout the New Testament, Paul writes over and over again about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and always speaks about it in this kind of way, that it is a gift from God. It is not something you can earn. You cannot be good enough this morning to earn this broken body and shed blood. It's given to you freely. The only thing we can do is freely receive the love and the grace of God for us today. Because Jesus wants nothing more than to be able to watch you enjoy the life that he has made for you to live. Jesus is our host, and there's a place at the table for everyone. It's an appropriate way to, to preach this morning about generosity because today is, as Chad said earlier, Worldwide Communion Sunday. 
So right now, all across the world, there are Christians who are celebrating and remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, the grace of God. I wanna show you a few pictures of some partnership that we have with people around the world who are taking part in communion this morning as well. This is from Liberia, West Africa, taking communion. This is a, a local shut-in here in our own community, taking communion. And this is Prashant's church in India, taking part in communion as well. And we join with millions of Christians worldwide for centuries remembering the sacrifice of Jesus this morning. So I wanna invite you to this open table. It's available to all. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy that you give to us. I thank you, Jesus, for being willing to sacrifice yourself to break your body and shed your blood that we might be made right with Jesus, be made right with God. I pray, Father, this morning that you would give us a repentant heart, the kind of hearts that might receive your grace to allow it to overflow from us to those around us. This morning, may this bread and this cup be to us the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. And everyone said together, amen.